Welcome to Louisville Reads. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLB Louisville, kicking off our 2022 season with a journey to the interior. British Tanzanian novelist Abdul Razak Gurna's 1994 masterpiece, Paradise. Interview with the author on the back half. Stay tuned. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Happy New Year and welcome to Louisville Reads, previously known as Read and Succeed. New title, new year, and new lineup of authors for 2022, but same great content that you've been enjoying for the last two seasons. Kicking off this season today, reading and reviewing one of the most exquisitely crafted short novels I've ever read. 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature winner Abdul Razak Gurna's 1994 Man Booker Shortlist finalist, Paradise. We'll follow that up with a larger review of contemporary African and African-American literature over the next three episodes with 2021 National Book Award winners All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley's Sack, A Black Family Keepsake by Tia Miles, and Hell of a Book, a novel by Jason Mott in February and March, respectively. And the 2021 Man Booker Prize winner, The Promise, by South African novelist Damon Galgut in April. Exciting, internationally acclaimed works on deeply prescient topics. Please stay tuned for that. Speaking of prescient, if you've enjoyed Read and Succeed, enjoy Louisville Reads, or enjoy any of the other programs you hear on 106.5 FM, please consider making a one-time or better yet recurring monetary donation to Community Radio as part of your financial plan for 2022. For a $20 donation, you essentially fund an entire day's worth of broadcasting. For a $50 donation, you essentially fund one hour per week of broadcasting for an entire year. Please visit forward radio forward slash donate to make a tax-deductible gift and be part of the movement. Also visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM. That's L-O-U Reads FM. Visit us on Twitter at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Visit us on Instagram at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Follow our YouTube and SoundCloud links to archived episodes for both Louisville Reads and the former Read and Succeed, and leave your thoughts and comments. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature winner Abdul Razak Gurna's 1994 novel Paradise is, like much of contemporary literature by the African diaspora, simply gorgeous to read. A former review of At Night All Blood is Black by French Senegalese novelist David Jop in the summer of 2021 comes to mind. Gurna's prose is, like Jop's, and like much of African art in general, outwardly simple in material, but upon closer inspection, endued with an absolute adoration for the entirety of the human experience. 
life's beauty, life's ugliness, birth, death, love, hate, gain, loss, healing, pain, etc. It's all there in Gurna and in Paradise once the story is completed. The novel itself concerns a young, 12-year-old East African Swahili boy named Yusuf, sold by his parents into indentured servitude to his uncle Aziz to settle a family debt, and involuntarily set out on an arduous journey with an Arab caravan from the eastern coast to Africa's sub-Saharan hinterlands, first to Lake Tanganyika and then to the source of the Congo River itself. Unlike Joseph Conrad's 1899 Heart of Darkness that made the same journey in letters a century earlier, but from the other direction, Gurna's Yusuf, mirroring the biblical and Quranic figure of Joseph, takes his journey into slavery and eventually colonialism more as an ascent to hope and faith versus a descent into darkness and despair, also mirroring in many ways the spiritual journey that Mr. Gurna himself took nearly a quarter century before Paradise was published, immigrating from Zanzibar to London, England in 1968, and facing all the inner and outer hardships of a black man in the late 20th century white world that he talks about in the interview at the end of this episode. Don't be deceived, however. Plenty of death and despair exist in the novel. Indentured servitude is, under any circumstances, slavery. And indentured servitude at 12 years old is, under any circumstances, child slavery. And Yusuf finds himself in a near-constant and at times unfiltered battle to escape bullying by his peers and outright child abuse by his captors. Outside of this, Central Africa was, and still is, very much a dangerous place. Poverty, exotic diseases, tribal warfare, pre-colonial, colonial, and post-colonial tensions all permeate Yusuf's experience, but somehow credit to Gurna in a way that reinforces his coming of age into an earthy, at times sensual, and altogether resilient optimism. As the snake of Western imperialism enters the garden at the end of the text, and East Africa falls to the first round of German colonialism in the late 19th century, the reader, or at least this reader, and one assumes Gurna, feels that Yusuf and Africa will actually be all right. There is no need for them to escape into their pre-colonial interior because that interior already and indestructibly exists within Yusuf, Gurna, and every African themselves. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. This next segment is an interview with Mr. Gurna, actually Dr. Gurna, at the University of Kent in Great Britain. It was recorded in October of 2021, about two months before he received his Nobel Prize for Literature. I'm unaware of if he knew he was going to win literature's highest honor at that point, but he clearly speaks about writing in himself in a very distinguished manner. His interview came at the end of a lecture on his works entitled Belonging, Colonialism, Arrival. And if you listen to the interview and read Paradise, you can still hear many of the parallels between a young Abdurraza Gurna and the character of Yusuf. Thanks to the University of Kent School of English for making this content publicly available. To learn more about the University of Kent, please visit kent.ac.uk. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads and enjoy this interview. Let's go back. Let's take you all the way back to when you were 17 years old mm-hmm. and you arrive in this country um, as a student. First of all, tell me what propelled you away. Let's just talk a little bit about Zanzibar before we talk about uh, what it was like being, being in Britain. Yes, of course, I've, I've um, talked about this uh, before because people ask that. Zanzibar... If oh dear, boring question. <laughs> no, 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 it's sometimes difficult, as, as you know, it's sometimes difficult to to be dynamic about a question that you've answered several times. So that's why I'm perhaps kind of like apologizing a little <laughs> bit that uh, this is a question that I've dealt with several times. Uh, 
But Zanzibar at the time, for those of you who don't know, but I hope most of you do know, was, uh, was um, well, in a very difficult situation. There's a great deal of violence. Um, the revolution had occurred in 1964. Uh, I was uh, 14, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I would have been about 14. Uh, and um, it was terrible. It was just shocking. I can't. Of course, um, there have been many other violent events like that, particularly in, uh, in the post-colonial world. I don't think it was quite as widespread as it were at that time. Uganda hadn't happened. Amin hadn't happened yet, for example. Um, of course, the Congo and the killings in the Congo had. But in many places, we hadn't seen. This was a big shock to, to have this uh, great violence. So um, you say you were 14. What they always tell us in radio is to paint a picture. Give us some images of what you saw at 14. Well, I was a schoolboy. Our schools were shut. Uh, all our teachers who were not uh, local teachers, and in fact that was probably true of most of them because this was one month after independence. They hadn't quite got everybody packed off yet. So most of our teachers were, were foreigners, were, were Europeans. Uh, so they were all sent away. Uh, schools were shut for several months. Um, the most obvious thing that, that you noticed is that um, there was curfew. Uh, there were multiple. The, there were um, frequent arrests for no reason. I mean, you know, uh, guns. We never saw guns uh, before the revolution. We just never. No, nobody. No policemen. No nothing. Nobody carried a gun. Now suddenly somebody with a gun walks into a little luka, into a little shop, you know? It's, it's like, you know, like a wild animal or something, you know? Everybody clears out. Uh, so the presence of guns, the presence, this, this violence. Around about that time, I'll tell you, it's the kind of incident that would have happened. Around about that time, there's um, an Ifnashri mosque, um, which, and the, I don't know if this is common with all Ifnashri mosques, but in this particular mosque, the community would come to the mosque to eat lunch. Uh, so lunch was actually served in the mosque and people would come there every day. I don't know, is that common? No. No, okay. So maybe it wasn't such a huge community, but anyway, they would go and eat lunch, uh, children as well as adults. And uh, one of these guys, they were called revolutionary counselors. They appointed themselves to the council that ran the country as it were. He walked into this mosque with two or three sidekicks and they machine gunned people. And nobody knows why acts like that took place. They did this, I think something like eight or nine people were killed, including a couple of children, and then they just walked out. Nothing happened. It was those kinds of uh, acts of, one might say random, I'm sure it wasn't random. I mean, you don't go into a mosque randomly. It must have been a deliberate thing to go in there and shoot and, and kill. Uh, and other smaller acts, you know, um, people getting uh, jailed for, for reasons nobody knows why. Um, uh, predatory activities of all kinds for, for against uh, young women, schoolgirls, etc. All kinds. It was the, that's the situation. Right. Okay. So you, so you left you left that situation at the age of seventeen, thinking presumably that you would go back. Yeah. Well, at the time, really, I don't even think what. Uh, at the time, uh, at the age of 17, can you imagine? Uh, the, the, re the main reason for, for leaving, actually, was because 
um, we've, I finished school the previous year. Um, and um, whereas it used to be possible that from then on you'd go on to do O-levels, that is, that you would go on to do A-levels and possibly go on to one of the universities on the, on the mainland, it would be. There was no university in Zanzibar. But uh, as part of this arbitrary authoritarian uh, activity of, of, of post-revolution, the uh, A-level classes were closed. You can't go on beyond O-level. Uh, and in fact, we were all required at the age of 16 to, to volunteer for national service. Uh, and we were sent to wherever it was. The, it wasn't national service in the sense of you know, military national service. We wouldn't be trusted with a gun, you know? Uh, but it would be really the, the whole function of this was to, to remove uh, existing civil servants, teachers, etc., etc., from their posts and put school kids in there. So there we were. I was sent to a country school to be a teacher at the age of 16. Some of the kids I was teaching were older than me, because uh, country, country children, you know, take their time about schools. Uh, they, they come, they go and do their harvest, they come back the following year, they do the year again, that kind of thing, you know. So some of them were married. Uh, no, no kidding, no kidding. Uh, particularly the girls, of course, because they were married off quite young. So some of, the, some, of the, some of the students, they were already married. Me, you know, a 16-year-old boy doing this. So it was things like that, really, that made it seem, I've got to get out of here. Um, because, again, as I said, at 17, you don't think of consequences in a proper or serious way. Uh, i just got to get out. I must go somewhere. I must go somewhere. Um, and as it turned out, I had a cousin of mine who was doing his PhD at, uh, actually around, that's why I ended up in Canterbury, at a college in Y. So I wrote to him and said, I'm coming. <laughs> First impressions of arriving in Britain? Rain. <laughs> it's true, it's true, it's true. And the people? Uh, well, it was shocking. It was shocking the, um, in many ways. I mean, really kind of almost cliched, obvious ways it was shocking. Uh, the rudeness um, to your face, people saying really quite unpleasant things, refusing to pronounce your name. Um, of course, more obvious uh, encounters in public places, shops, etc., etc. And at 17, <clears throat> how did you cope with that? What, what was going through your mind? Can you remember? I mean, you can remember that people said terrible things to you. Can you remember what you were reflecting and how you thought about it? I made what a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> this is a blunder. What am I doing here? Yeah, I think there was, there was a sense of um, shock, great shock. Uh, I remember even before, I mean, this is how shocking it was. Uh, b before we even arrived, we changed flights. My brother and I came together. We changed flights in Brussels because we, we flew Sabina from Dar es Salaam. Airline, uh, in case you don't know. And uh, so we were changing, we changed uh, flights in Brussels and we were sitting there in the, somewhere. I mean, that was the first time I was flying, right? So I, I don't know, I wouldn't have known where I was. We just wait here until you go to the next. And there were two men sitting alongside nearby 
in pinstripes, you know, wearing pinstripe suits. Now, of course, one reads about these things, but I'd never actually seen anybody with, <laughs> with a pinstripe suit. And so Ahmed and I were kind of like this, you know. They're wearing pinstripe suits. So they really do wear pinstripe suits. And one of these men says to the other, what are these staring at? So that's the first time. What? What was that for? But it's that kind of thing. So what do, what do you do? Well, you kind of shrink, um, become more watchful, I suppose. Um, Silent? Yeah. Um, I think also it's a certain kind of um, ignorance that you don't know, you can't anticipate those situations. Uh, and what you learn is how to do so, how to anticipate the situation so that th that moment when somebody says, what are these staring at, doesn't happen. Not because you don't stare, but because you somehow or the other generate something that says, don't say anything like that. But you have to learn those things. And obviously, it takes a while to learn to kind of like brazen it out or to outstare or indeed to just go in the other direction or look away or something like that. Uh, I think it's those were, well, of course, the, if people really do wish to hurt you, then none of that will work. But I mean. Did that ever happen? Were you ever threatened with violence? Did anything like that ever happen? Um, not of any importance. Uh, <laughs> in fact, almost laughable. I remember um, walking from somewhere where I used to go to watch TV, walking home, which was actually in Mill Lane uh, in, the, in the town. And uh, somewhere around about the Westgate there, a couple of, this was, this was the days of football hooligans, when football hooligans used to trash the trains every Saturday and all this kind of thing. And around about the- uh, I think it still happens sometimes. Uh, yeah, but not like then, <laughs> not like then. That was a regular thing, you know. Uh, it's, or at least it seemed to me from memory that it was a regular thing. But anyway, around about the Westgate Gardens, this big man, maybe only about 22, 23, but I was only about 17 and a half, 18, grabbed me like this, kind of almost lifted me off the pavement and said, do you support Liverpool? <laughs> <laughs> of course you said yes straight away. <laughs> No, I think actually what I said, I hadn't learned the <laughs> I think I said, put me down. <laughs> when, when, when you said that you felt that it was possibly a blunder and a mistake, can you, can you remember a time, a moment, or perhaps over a period of a year, when you thought, actually, this, this is where I'm going to stay and this is where I will attempt to make my life? Yeah, not over a year. <clears throat> I do remember walking uh, along Canterbury High Street because uh, those first years we were here. Uh, and I do remember at some point, it would have been like three or four months or so after being here, uh, opposite the old boots, you know, the, the, uh, and I remember thinking, I have now really understood what it means when they say this is a free country. So I think it's a, that was the first moment that I thought, because I can think what I like. Of course, I could think what I like before, but I had to pretend I wasn't thinking it. <laughs> I, I can say whatever. I can believe, or people can. They can say, 
um, you know, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not this. People can say things like that. I can dress how I want. I, can do. I think and that I understood something about freedom. And I thought, this is, this is okay. This is all right. But of course, that was all along and all the time um, intersected with many other things, poverty, uh, insecurity, what's going to happen to me, do I want to live here, all of those kinds of things. But there were also these other moments when, when I understood, yes, there is something here that I haven't come across before. For those just joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Tanzanian-born British novelist Abdurazak Garna, winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature. The title of this event is called Belonging, Colonialism, Arrival, organized by the University of Kent School of English. To learn more about the University of Kent, please visit kent.ac.uk. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads. That's L-O-U Reads FM. And at what stage in your life did you start making notes with a view to writing stories, or had you always done that? No, 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 no. Actually, I didn't. Uh, when, when I was at school, I used to like writing, but mostly it would be plays that we did for fun, really. At the, at the end of the year, we'd write the plays and just have fun at the end of term. So it wasn't, it wasn't serious. There was not... There wasn't such a thing as wanting to be a writer where I grew up. You know, nobody, nobody would say, would have said, of course now they might. Nobody would have said at that time, what are you going to do? I'm going to be a writer. You know, it's not... Now it's possible too many people say it. Well, I, I don't know that it's got that bad yet. But, <laughs> but it, wasn't, it wasn't an ambition uh, that people had. And even those who did write, and there were people who were writing, had other jobs. You know, they, they wrote maybe for the radio or they wrote for the newspapers and so on, but they had other jobs. There wasn't such a thing as, as a writer, at least not none that I knew of. So it wouldn't have occurred to me in that way. So I think when it, when, when it was here in England and, um, and some of these things were, were really... Oh, I did mention something about loneliness, I suppose. It was also quite a lonely time uh, because of not... Not, not having friends or not knowing how to go about making friends and get on in this country and so on. So why do you think that was hard? Why, why is it hard to make friends when you're, you're young, you're around a lot of other young people? What would have been the obstacles? Well, the obstacles would be that they all had complicated lives uh, and they had homes to go to and already had friends of their own and you come into this and unless they wish to make space for you, um, which they didn't, in fact, they did the opposite. I was being battered with, a, with scorn and whatever by the people I knew at, at the college where I was studying. Um, there was this one kid, you, read, you wrote this really evocative essay about Margate. Oh, yes, yes, in, yes. In which, you, in which you recount the story about... John. John. Yeah. T tell us that story, because I think it's really interesting. Okay, well, he was, he was the one who selected himself uh, as my champion, as it were. Uh, <laughs> So he was the one who was going to protect me from all this, uh, this abusive whatever it was. I mean, that's what the interesting thing about this kind of thing, because they're all kind of uh, themselves about the same age as I was. The interesting thing is that there wasn't a sense of, um, I mean, I'm sure there was malice, but it wasn't, it wasn't malice in the teeth of you know, disapproval, as it were. It was okay to do these things. It was okay to, um, to say abusive, to write on the board or to draw uh, 
you know, various pictures of that was then that would then be have my name underneath it and this kind of thing. It was all right, and then they would just laugh and think, "Hey, it's fun, isn't it?" But but of course, what you felt as the recipient of all of this was not fun. But anyway, so John uh, decided. John grew up in South Africa. He's an English boy, but he grew up in South Africa. And the first thing he said to me was, "I hate." So yeah, okay. Are you coming to lunch? <laughs> so our, our relationship was like that. Uh, <laughs> he was my champion against these foul-mouthed people, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't be foul-mouthed to me. And uh, then he thought you were different. Yeah, 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 he kept saying. And, and he even invited me to stay with you know, to his home, uh, and his father was uh, absurdly racist. Uh, because he would say, I'm sure many of you know about this kind of scene, but he would say, I think, whatever, 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 all kind of the whatever racist filth would come out. But you are different. <laughs> so somehow he too gave himself permission to say whatever racist anything he wanted to say, because I don't include you. All right? Uh, but anyway, so... John used to work, um, I don't know if he's still there, I don't think he's there, but there used to be a miniature golf course in Margate. Does anybody remember? He's still there? Yeah. yeah, okay. So he used to work there. There used to be a little kiosk, a kind of kennel thing, where, where the person selling the tickets and so on was sitting there. So he was that. Uh, and we used to sit in that kennel thing for hours. Uh, while the, there was some, some kind of reel-to-reel -reel thing that was playing on the PA. And I remember Hey Jude. I remember I mentioned yeah, that. Yeah. Hey Jude was re playing again and again and again and again for hours. Mind you, it's a, the whole thing is kind of playing on and on for hours anyway. Anyway, so, so that, was, that was John. I, I wonder, I mean, um, Giles in his lecture talks about, um, you know, the relationship between longing and belonging. And, and in, in those moments when you are clearly dislocated and, and not belonging to this society, I, I wonder how much you thought about home and, and how much you imagined being there or, or, or the balance between imagining being there and, and the need to, to make roots here. Well, I couldn't... Uh... <clears throat> I knew I couldn't go back because that was the price you paid for for leaving illegally. <clears throat> um, so, so I knew that was out in a way. So that was part of the. I suppose possibly the greatest burden of those early years was that realizing that what have I done? So almost almost arriving is you know at the same moment is also coming to this understanding that I've abandoned my home, if you like. Um, so the, I thought a lot about home. In fact, uh, I probably used to write about three letters a week. <laughs> uh, and also I used to get three letters a week. In those days, they used to reply to my letters. <laughs> <laughs> but I think obviously after a while, everybody got tired of this, you know, this endless stream of you know, this homesick teenager who keeps sending all this stuff out. So I thought a lot about home, indeed. But yeah, but like everything else, you have to learn to, to cope, move on. Um, and where does that resilience come from to be able to cope? Uh, desperation, I suppose. You know, when things go wrong, um, 
money runs out, you've got to find ways of, uh, of coping. So either that or, I don't know, we didn't think, I didn't think that there was another way, I suppose. Uh, maybe I wasn't uh, reckless enough or courageous enough to think maybe a bit of crime might be the answer here. Uh, I don't know, but it just didn't occur that you could do anything but get organised. I, I wonder how much you thought about the smallness of, of England, d despite its huge history and the fact that it was an empire and so on, at the head of the, an empire. I wonder how much you thought about the smallness of Britain in the context of your own experience of Zanzibar as a, as a place where traders came and, and went. And, mm. and in some ways, it, it, it must have felt like quite a cosmopolitan place, given what you, what you encountered when you first came here. Uh, no, I didn't think England, of England as a small place. Um, That's just me then. <laughs> oh, you saw that? <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. I thought it was astonishing when I first came here from Nairobi. I, I yeah, just yeah. thought there, were, there was, it was so, something about the skies mm. that made it feel small. And I don't mean mm. in historical terms. Obviously, mm. it just felt physically like it was a, mm -hmm. oppressive and small. Right. No, I, I didn't. I must admit I didn't. Uh, I think I felt small. Um, Definitely. Um, I, I, it wasn't like I had a, a sense of, um, of, of England as uh, monumental or anything like that, despite having read various things and so on. Because partly, I suppose, because um, our reading was rather haphazard rather than organized. So, you know, you got glimpses of things and so on. But I think. I think I sensed that Canterbury was small, <laughs> but I didn't have a sense that England was small. England seemed huge to me. And I think, I don't know, probably TV played a part in that. You know, uh, we didn't have TV in Zanzibar. Uh, you didn't have a, a picture of the world, as it were, being laid out in front of you night after night. Um, big claims being made, etc. So maybe it's those. And I thought it was a quite a complicated place. So maybe that too gave it a sense of being big rather than small. Uh, and when you say there was no ambition to, to become a writer in, in your upbringing, at, at what point did you think, actually, there are things I have to say or things that I want to explore enough for me to attempt <coughs> this? Yeah, sure. Um, possibly the third year I was here. I think I think it was it was uh, as I've, I've used this I've said this before somewhere uh, that it was something I kind of stumbled into really started to do it before I thought shall I do this or not uh, and so I was writing bits and pieces and so on uh, and truly it was like your li little notebook here and say it's getting big <laughs> you know you know the pages are filling up as it were. Um, I think it was then, it's something like 1970 or so, something like that, that I thought, what's this? <laughs> what am I doing? And I think that's when I began to write as opposed to writing things down uh, and trying to say, well, what is this? How can I make this? How can I shape this? What can I do with this? That's when it started. And I wrote it all by hand as well in those days. And, and you don't anymore. Um, I, I, I just, I, I also wonder how you locate yourself. You know, I, I, 
I've interviewed Toni Morrison, and when she first started out, it was a very conscious thought in her own mind. She wanted to call herself an African-American writer. That mattered to her. I, I wonder how you would locate yourself. Do you see yourself as a as an Indian Ocean kind of writer? Do you see yourself as a as a British writer, as an African writer? I know Giles referred to you in in the lecture as an African writer. I, I wonder if you if you think about a, a, not a definition, but just a kind of location, if you like. Uh, not uh, in, in in an inflexible way, shall we say? Uh, <laughs> That is to say, I'm all of those things. Uh, probably when I started uh, in those early days, I would have been uh, outraged at your question, wanting to, it would have felt like you're trying to say to me, what kind of writer are you? Put yourself in this space and say, I am this kind of writer. Because I would have wanted to say something like, uh, well, I'm a writer. Uh, and we leave it at that. And I know that uh, other writers, particularly when they're at the starting stages of their writing, also respond in this way, this refusal to, to be, to be um, well, the cliche is labeled. Uh, but it's, it's the, the fear of it, I think, is that you don't want to be ruled out of something else. You don't want to be ruled out of being uh, um, somebody who can write about whatever you might want to write about. Because what it seems to me follows from saying I'm an African writer, say, or a British writer, is what it seems to me follows, or what is, what is possibly implicit in that, is the idea that you then have a certain terrain to speak about. Your subject, you're obliged to speak about certain things, that this is your responsibility, or this is your, you know, like, um, like the usual thing that uh, the debate between um, committed writing and as well, uh, art for art's sake, that kind of thing, these sorts of debates, which it seems to me are pointless uh, in the sense that there's no reason why you shouldn't write beautifully, but also write instrumentally at the same time. Uh, I don't see that. So my fear would, would have been uh, that if you if you allow a definition to to as you were to to draw the line around you, then what will follow is that there are certain kinds of that kind of thinking presumes that there are certain kinds of obligations that you then must fulfil. I, I suppose part of of the what informs my question, but only part. Oh, I didn't mean you shouldn't ask it. No, no, I no, I know, that. I know, and and I'm glad you weren't outraged. But I, but I just wonder also about the vagaries of the publishing industry because. You know, there clearly is a, a increasingly a, a sense of feeling that they they have to be able to market a writer in a particular way, and and I I wonder if you had clocked that straight away from your engagement with the publishing industry, whether people thought, oh yes, well he is clearly an African writer because this is what he writes about, or he is this kind of writer, or you know, I just wonder whether those conversations were ever had implicitly with you. Well, perhaps that's why it took 12 years to publish my first book, from its completion to its publication. I'll tell you a story. I don't know if I've told this story before, uh, in public, that is. Uh, my first book, which became Memory Departure, and this is what I mean about the obligation, as it were, 
what you were obliged to do, was um, because in those days I did think of myself as an African writer. So when I completed writing it, which would have been something like about 1973, I suppose, something like that maybe. And, and because, because I thought of myself as an African writer, I sent that manuscript to the African Writers Series, as it then was. It uh, was Heinemann ones. Yeah. It was then in its full bloom. It, of course, hardly exists now. But it was then perhaps at, its, at the height of its, well, activity, shall we say. And the, um, the person who was running it wrote to me after receiving the reader's report and said, uh, we, want to, we will do it. I can't offer you a contract yet, but um, we're just waiting for a reader's report from Nairobi. But we'll do it. Fine. I foolishly went around saying to people, hey, hey, hey. my book's <laughs> going to be published. My book's going to be published. A month later or so, I got a, a letter from the same man to say, I'm really sorry, but we've now received the reader's report from Nairobi. I'm enclosing a photocopy of it. And what that reader's, reader's report said was no, of course, but what it said was that this is, um, I can't remember the phrase anymore, so long ago, but basically this is not the right kind of writing. So they pulled out. Uh, I think it was at that point that I thought to myself, well, I'm not an African writer. I'm not an African writer if this is what it means, uh, that you have to write in a certain way. Um, and so from then on, I, I've uh, tried to interest uh, British publishers. And that took forever, ages. That took forever. In the meantime, of course, maybe it wasn't such a bad thing. Because in the meantime, I was writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting this book. So in a way, um, I wasn't fortunate enough to have a creative writing tutor. But in a way, in a way, that I think is where I learned, taught myself, learned, taught myself to write by the process of just reworking this damn thing. Uh, not all the time, of course, because you, you simply run out of... Um, enthusiasm for doing something that looks like it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and also because you have to do other things, you have to study, you have to work, you have to whatever. And then in some desperation, uh, I sent that manuscript, this would have been 1985, 84, and in some desperation I, I sent it to Jonathan Cape. At that time, Jonathan Cape were the ace publisher. They had Rushdie, McEwan, um, what's his name, the Julian Barnes, Philip Roth, blah, 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 you know? <laughs> <coughs> they had all these people, and I sent this manuscript, no agent, I couldn't even get an agent in those days. Um, I sent this to, uh, not knowing, but this is what they call the slush pile. Uh, so it arrives there, um, and they took it. Just like that. <laughs> but, you know, I, as I, I said in the letter that accompanied this, you didn't know, it was almost like a suicide note. <laughs> <laughs> I said something like, um, 
Uh, I've tried several people. You are always the ones I wanted to send it to, but I didn't. So here you are. You can say no as well. <laughs> Interesting there. For those just joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Tanzanian-born British novelist Abdurazak Garna, winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature. The title of this event is called Belonging, Colonialism, Arrival, organized by the University of Kent School of English. To learn more about the University of Kent, please visit kent.ac.uk. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads. That's L-O-U Reads FM. Um, all the time, as you say, you know, one has to get on with, with what one's doing. And so you were, you're, you're writing, you're an academic. To, to what extent does reading other people's work or critiquing other people's works inform the way in which you have developed as a writer, if at all? Do you mean, uh, yeah, well, um, the two questions may be there, I don't know. Uh, that is to say, the doing criticism is one thing, and reading other people's work mm. is another. I mean, you know, I read, obviously, read a lot of people's work that I wasn't doing <coughs> criticism of. Right. I think on the whole, I, was, uh, <clears throat> I kept these two things separate, the whole. Uh, that is to say, I knew who, whose work I admired and whose work I thought enviously about. I wish I could write like that. Uh, who, who did you read? I'm not about? telling you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not telling you because it isn't, again, it isn't something that's static, that comes at various times. It's this, at various times, it's that. You might read something, I think, at that time. I, I must stop reading this. It's depressing me. It's so good. <laughs> uh, and then maybe someone else later. So I knew, uh, not I knew, but I, there were writers that I admired, or whose work I admired, which were not necessarily writers that I wanted or to write, to write about critically or whatever. So I could separate these two things quite happily, I think. But inevitably, there would have been various uh, overlaps, both in terms of uh, reading and seeing, oh, look at that. Isn't that, look at how she has done that or has done this. Uh, and so you learn, you learn things. The use of, for example, I'm thinking of reading, or oh, here's one I do admire, uh, but not, not as it were principally or on his own, but Kutsia, for example. Think, look at the way in Waiting for, Barbari for the Barbarians is able to, to uh, show the shifts in the landscape with such, such minimal effort, as you were. That is to say, not that he's not making an effort, but the words are not making an effort. You know, see how... So something like that, surely, you, you know, you learn, you learn that. You think, how does he do that? And so, etc. Or, you know, thinking of uh, the way... Uh, Somebody like Saul Bellow can energize prose. Um, you can learn something from that. So things like that. There might be specific things that, that, that I think were happening. There are some writers I admire. I can read and reread and reread. I can't read Saul Bellow anymore. Um, I think, and it's funny, funny about this. You know, same thing in my knowledge and experience of Naipaul. At some point, at some point something kind of registers and you think, I don't like this man. Uh, <laughs> even though for years I used to read Naipaul, I've read almost everything that Naipaul has written. 
But then at, at some point, I think, no. No, this fellow means it. He's not just, he's not just making a case, as it were. This, this is coming from somewhere here. So, this isn't, so you're talking about his non-fiction? I'm talking about his fiction. So it, that, that comes through even in his non-fiction? I think, in his fiction. absolutely. I think certainly by the time of uh, A Bend in the River, uh, it's coming through, okay? And I think that's the same thing. I found the same thing with, with uh, Bello, that at some point, even though I was happy to go along with his you know, sharpness and his, you know, uh, at what seemed at times to be outrageous outspokenness, uh, then at some point, you think he means it. When, when he said that thing about uh, the Zulu Tolstoy, I thought, we're parting company, buddy. <laughs> I'm not going with this. Um, and then once, once, I think, once you begin to think differently about somebody like that, was body of work you've been immersed in for many years, you rethink that as well. I've, I've found. You, re, you, re, you think again about what you had read and accepted, as it were. And this is, I think, what happened for me, particularly with Naipaul, sort of thinking back about what he says about uh, Africa and Africans, thinking about what he says about Islam. Uh, I read all of those books thinking, don't be too hasty. Just keep, you know, he's saying his bit, you know, listen to him. But, but then, as I said, at a certain point, it wasn't possible anymore. So all, all, all the while you're, you're, you're reading, you're working, you're having relationships, having children, bringing up a family and so on, and, and Britain is changing. All kinds of spikes in violence focused specifically on uh, minorities. I wonder how you reflected on, you know, particularly the, the 80s, the riots, you know, something as pivotal as the Stephen Lawrence murder. All of these things... I'm, I'm sure inform all kinds of writers and they don't make it into their books in any obvious way, but I, I'm interested in how you reflect on how much Britain has changed, how little it's changed. Well, it's a big thing you're asking because uh, <clears throat> it also depends, I suppose, where or in what, uh, what uh, activity of uh, the culture and society and so on. Evid, obviously, it has changed. Uh, it has changed, um, look around the room, not quite so many, but look around the university and the number of black students that are here. I remember when I first came to work here, um, and Lynn will remember this, uh, in 1985, we, uh, I was given the, the task, as you were, of um, somehow or the other helping to recruit black students. Um, <laughs> uh, did they just think you knew a lot of them? No, no. <laughs> no, because I had just come. I had just come from working for uh, um, a, an NGO type thing, uh, which actually recruited black students in Hackney to try and get to to reintegrate them, as it were, into education. People dropped out in some way or another. So I think maybe uh, they thought that that experience might be helpful, but it was not. It was not because of the larger inequalities as were out there. Just did not, they just weren't there to come. Now they are. So I think that's a change that you can see, you know, that, uh, that the aspirations of uh, black people in this country have made it possible for them to, if not for themselves, to make, it, to make education, higher education, and presumably uh, 
various other things, jobs, etc., available to their children, if not to them. So I'd say that's one change. The other change, which I, which I think is also worth remarking on, is this, the sense of public outrage at certain, um, um, what should I say, at certain kinds of uh, utterances or actions and so on. Like I said, when I came here, people could, could, could speak filth in your face uh, without feeling bad, without uh, you being able to say, hey, you know, like I'm saying, John's father saying whatever. It's not, it's not on now to do that. You know, people don't do that now. Uh, so there is a kind of uh, way in which it's understood that there is a public language of respect, even if you really think this guy's a <laughs> but you keep your mouth shut until you get home, and then you tell your husband or your wife that that guy's a so I think that too is a change. It means that civic life is possible. It means people can rub along whether they like each other or not. Um, well, not the police, of course. They're a separate case. So I think things have changed. Opportunities are there more. Um, listen, I was uh, a few months ago reading Camilla Shamsi's novel, Home Fire, where she has uh, a man of Pakistani origin as a home office minister. Boom, boom. What have we got? <laughs> a man of Pakistani she origin. Was so as a, prescient. It was very clever. As a, well. <laughs> as a, so things like that. Surely there are quite remarkable and significant changes. This doesn't mean that everything's now okay. We can all go home and let. It isn't so, as we know, and we also know that at this, you know, Brexit proved it. Uh, at certain moments, these things can come up, can bubble up again, uh, and. We keep here every day. The Guardian finds another little abuse, of, you know. Uh, so fine. This is this is as it should be. This kind of uh, alertness about where the change isn't yet full. Um, this kind of alertness is is necessary and is is has to keep going. Would would you say now, when you look back on your your career as a writer, as an academic, would you say that you belong? now in this country? Uh, well, I think so. I say I think so because, I mean, I think I know how to belong. Let me put it like that. Uh, and that has to be good enough? Well, I, it's, what makes it, what makes it um, good is this kind of thing. Um, for example, I feel uh, part of a community um, the, the writing itself is, is uh, an enabler of that, that people read and share ideas. But also in other ways, I feel part of a writing community uh, with other writers, uh, with the various activities that I engage in. My family, of course, are here. Not all of them. Many of them are still in Zanzibar. But my immediate family I mean, are here. Um, our friends, whatever. So in that respect, it's as good as home sh could be or should be, as you were, you know? In the context of the writing... But, I, but, okay, but, go, but, go but. Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'll save that question. <laughs> but there is another way in which there is another belonging which I can't shake off, as you were, um, which is why I keep returning to it in the writing. So I think it's both things. And I think 
I think in a way, although at times it felt, or does feel still, but less and less, at times it felt tragic to be in that position. In another way, it's also the, the, the dynamo, as you were, of, of, my, of my imagination. For those just joining us, this is an October 2021 interview with Tanzanian-born British novelist Abdurazak Garna, winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature. The title of this event is called Belonging, Colonialism, Arrival, organized by the University of Kent School of English. To learn more about the University of Kent, please visit kent.ac.uk. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads, that's L-O-U Reads FM. The, the, the next question that I was going to ask before I interrupted you no, no, was, no, no. was, was really to do with the writing, the extent to which you think about the writing as being part of a legacy that you give to another generation, you know, perhaps just your own family or all your readership, you know, all those people who, who, who don't know enough about what it feels like to, to be dislocated, to feel alienated. I mean, I, I, I wonder how important that is to you. Because it now exists as a body of work. Um, it, I'm very grateful that it is so. Um, that both it exists and also that that it uh, that it has that that it is received in that way, um, as I know it is because of the way people speak to me about it or, or emails a great burden. But the other thing, the other thing it does is it does actually connect you with people that you don't know who, who, are, who get in touch and express their whatever. But I would, I would say that the, the impulse is, is inside rather than that impulse to, to, um, to educate or to whatever, um, which is to say I'm not ruling that out. I'm not saying it's a, I mean, you know, the outcome of writing is, is out, of, out of the writer's hands after a, you know, the, the, the process, as it were. But the production of the writing is entirely the writer's responsibility. I think you can't fool around with saying um, things like so many, anyway, the things that some writers say that I'm doing this in order to achieve such and such and such for others. Uh, I really just don't think you can, that is the writer's, not this writer anyway, uh, imagination, as it were, which is, which is to say, what's, what is it? What's, what's the issue? What do I want to do? What do I want to talk about? And then the outcome is out of your hands, in a way. The, the thing I hate is the idea <clears throat> that somehow you should be speaking for other people or you should aim to transform people. I don't. I, at least I don't think like that. I don't think what I want to do is to change anybody. I remember one more, one more story. I remember going, uh, visiting Dar es Salaam, being invited to Dar es Salaam um, by the British Council, actually. And there was this event which they advertised brilliantly, so there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people in the audience, and journalists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when it came, I was even introduced by the British High Commissioner. So, you know, it was a big event. And one of the journalists uh, at question time stood up and said, what contribution, and I say it in that tone of voice because that's the tone of voice he said it in, <laughs> what contribution does your work make to the uh, progress of Tanzania? 
I said, that's up to you to determine. I just write what interests me. And he said some other thing, which I can't remember, but it was, it was to say, to mentioning names of writers who, in his view, are doing this for their countries, uh, which I remember, I remember the names like Nuruddin Farah, Ngugiwa Thiongo, whatever, whatever, all of whom honorable and decent people, of course. But he was claiming them and appropriating them as the example of what he wanted me to do. He then bowed <laughs> and walked out. <laughs> and the next day, as I discovered, because the next day we went to Zanzibar, or the day after we went to Zanzibar, I discovered when I got there that he'd written a totally stinking piece in, <laughs> in his publication, calling me all kinds of things, an imperialist stooge, a this, a that, a that, a the other. Hey, friends, don't you just love what you're hearing here on Forward Radio? Don't you just want more? These are the people's airwaves. These are your airwaves. We need you to get involved. Go to forwardradio.org and consider the many ways to put more you in community radio. Whether it's time, talent, or treasure, we need everything you can give to make this radio station happen. At forwardradio.org, you'll find a way to get radioactive with us. That's it for this episode of Louisville Reads. Join us next episode for Black History Month, reviewing all that she carried at the journey of Ashley Sack, a black family keepsake by Harvard University historian Tia Miles. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>